Hey everyone, how's it going? This is Champagne Sharks. Hope everyone's enjoying their Easter Sunday or whatever the Sunday means to you. And this is T Trevor. You can find me on Twitter at Ricky Rawls. And with us is Mike. Hey everybody, this is Mike. You can find me on Twitter at Black Exception One. And quick house cleaning um go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks to subscribe to the show you get double the episodes also you get access to all the past premium episodes in addition you also get access to the discord server which is a text and voice chat where we're going to be occasionally hosting uh different voice chats with theme topics maybe uh be the equivalent of taking uh listener calls and things of that nature we're still setting that up and it's available once you join the patreon so you know that's pretty good and also if you can't donate right now share the podcast with your friends strangers enemies your whatever that's the next best thing you can do and leave a five-star review on itunes that helps people discover the show and that's pretty much the end of the housekeeping now we have our guest. Um, he's all—he's been one of our most popular guests. The uh, two most popular guests. I put up a poll asking um, which two guests you would most like to come back for a repeat uh, performance. And the two that were tied were Dr. Lewis Gordon and our guest today, Dr. Tommy Curry. So if you could say hello to the people, Dr. Curry. How's everybody doing? Thanks for inviting me back. Okay. Now, I was planning to have Dr. Curry on anyway, because I had done the poll already. And a bunch of things happened in the news that um, made me think this was a good time to do it. But by coincidence, his name came up on the show uh, last week. So it's something else that's worth uh, bringing up. It's just one more piece of uh, serendipity. And uh, a lot of people got mad. A lot of people got upset with the show. They uh, were saying that uh, when Wendy Muse was on last week, uh, we had about like 10, 15 minutes left. So we told her just, um, you know, give us a preview of things that uh, you have problems with on the show because she had mentioned offhand very early before we started uh, that there were certain things that she doesn't agree with us on the show about. So we said, okay, we have you on for this specific topic, Black Brazil, but we've always wanted to hear from, from a Black woman some of the things that they might not like. So at the end of the show, we'll give you like 10 minutes to mention some things to us. And one of the things that um, came up was uh, that uh, she had a disagreement with Jessica Crispin. Uh, she also had a disagreement with uh, Tommy Curry. She said that she didn't have specific um, examples to cite at the time because she wasn't expecting to come on to talk about it, but that um, Dr. Curry was, his data was right, but he, um, Mike, what was it? That, that he doesn't contextual always <laughs> give it the full proper... Co- that was, uh, basically, she said his interpretation of the data she didn't agree with as far as I remember, I didn't re-listen to the episode. And as far as the, you know, I just, because I don't want to mischaracterize what she said at all. She didn't say that she disagreed with that Jessica Crispin. She just said that she felt that we gave Jessica Crispin a license that we wouldn't give to black women to say a black woman woman to say the same thing. I don't know where she's basing that assumption on, but yeah. So, so, so yeah. So we told her to give examples of things that um, we let Justice Crispin say that she doesn't think we let a black woman say and to give examples of like inaccuracies that have been on the show. And then we'll hash it out then. Now, being that we had about 10, 15 minutes left and we didn't want to open up a whole another hour, two hours, you know, we didn't make a big deal about it. We figured we could actually hash it out and really talk about it when she came back with her specific examples but y'all let us know that you were not happy you know so by serendipity dr curry is here he was going to be here anyway so um dr curry i will give you the floor 
Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I think, uh, <laughs> I guess, do you want me to respond to uh, Miss Muse's criticism first or? Oh, well, you can kind of respond to the whole kind of um, climate because one of the things I was going to actually have you want to do uh-huh. in addition to talk about the studies was to talk about various uh, characterizations that you tend to get. Like, for example, people will keep uh, writing me like, are you aware that Dr. Curry is an MRA? But then they yeah. won't really give me an example. Like, they'll say, like, uh, he's known in the debate community for being an MRA. And then I'll ask, well what makes up an MRA? And then they won't really um, say or they'll disappear or they'll say like, you know, he mischaracterizes this or that. And, you know, they won't really specify. Right. Well, I think, I think the reason that debaters, I was, as you know, I was an ex debater. I, um, you know, won JV Nats and Pi Kappa Delta Nats back in college. So I still have somewhat peripheral um, relationship to some of the arguments in debate. Uh, but, you know, these are these are undergraduates in college uh, who are driven by very specific perceptions of what scholarship is. So they're reading people and they're reading scholarship and very much in line with where we are right now in terms of, you know, the attitudes and the theories that dominate the academy. Uh, they feel that certain gender theories simply cannot be interrogated. So the assumption is that there are no missing spots or blind spots in black feminist mm-hmm. thinking. And as you know, I think that that's false. I think that there's this isn't as I've been extremely clear about. Um, this is not to say that black feminism is evil. This is not to say that all black feminism is anti-black male or anti-male. It is to point out that some of the mythologies and some of the ideas that surround the accounts of patriarchy and domestic violence, uh, as well as the history of the development of black maleness in the United States and abroad, are woefully uh, inaccurate. And I think that to make that kind of argument uh, in a debate community is very problematic because they don't have any cards. They don't have any evidence against my research. So the easiest way to make sure that you can still win rounds and the ways that you can still run your positions is to be like, well, nobody can read Curry. Uh, and, you know, and I think that that's the effect that it has that, you know, we, it's like, listen, if Curry's right, then our arguments are intersectionality and our stuff that we're writing, reading about black feminism and black feminist performance about the body's wrong. And that, I mean, think about how many teams that's going to affect. So this is a practical issue. Uh, as far as, me being a uh, MRA, so I guess that's a men's rights advocate, right? Or activist. Um, uh, yeah, and and uh, before you answer, I just wanted to say I don't just take people's uh, word about things, uh, and that goes for either the person accusing you uh, or you. I always like to read up. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I did all these types of Googling of your name with combinations of MRA terms and I was not able to find exactly with your name attached to it, which is one of the reasons why I was very kind of reliant on the people making the accusations to give me the proof. Cause it wasn't like they could just tell me yeah. and then I could just go off to the races. I couldn't find anything. And well, nobody I, I, could I, ever I, really say it. But I'll admit yeah. like I've never, somebody told me that a year or two ago and I didn't know what MRA meant. So I actually had to go and look it up and you know, and, and uh, you know, I mean, I don't know what to say. I don't have any connection with the MRA organization. I don't think I know any MRA people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. I don't know if any. I mean, if if it'll be news to me if MRAs are claiming me. And I think it's funny because I, you know, I think I said on on another show that listen, if if I'm MRA, then you understand that the argument is against white masculinity. Because my research is about how white men, how white patriarchy uh, creates homoerotic associations with the black male body and uses that as its justification for racism. So my argument is that there's a homoeroticism and misandry at work within patriarchy that's directed towards subjugated racial racialized males. Uh, that- but you know, you know what? I think one of the problems is right, and this is a kind of instinct that people have that's hard to untrain in them is that they think of black people as just white people and black people exactly. as far as sharing the same gender dynamics. So like what happens is this is something I've noticed myself. Like if I, if I use the word misandry, it registers to them as the same as when a white man complains about misandry, which to them sounds like a white person complaining about reverse racism. Like right. they think it's the same thing. So, so 
uh, there's this inability to stop thinking of black men as being duplicates of the same gender dynamics that benefit white men. So when they hear, I think what probably happens is when they hear a black man use the word misandry, the knee-jerk reaction is to think of it the same way as when a white man uses misandry. And when a white man uses that word misandry, it usually is a red flag that he's in MRA. That's the only uh, thing that I could think of because your name um, did pop up with using the word misandry oh, yeah. often. And you did use the word misandry today, you oh, know, yeah. and I think I have a feeling that's probably the mistake that people are doing. Well, you know, it's interesting, though. I mean, but this is this is what I mean. Right. Is that the time period that we're in is just so underdeveloped in terms of critical thinking. The reason that I use the term anti-black misandry, and I've been very clear about this, is that in 2012, uh, William A. Smith, who's the author and originator of the term racial battle fatigue, uh, wrote uh, an article where he said that uh, black misandry was a psychologism that had biases that were comparable to misogyny when he was evaluating microaggressions and racial attitudes towards black men on predominantly white institutions and college campuses. Right. So he actually talks about black misandry in an article that compares it to an exaggerated uh, pathological aversion towards black males. And he thinks that this is created and reinforced in institutions and society and even in terms of individual bias, bias and aversion. Right. Um, so that's me sticking to the previous literature. In my book, I talk about anti-Black misandry uh, as the driving force behind racism. So anti-Black racism has a component of misandry because it targets subordinate males. Now, this account of misandry is no different than what uh, R.W.S. Connell's talking about in the relationship between hegemonic masculinities and subordinate masculinities. I just use the term of misandry to particularize the kind of racist aversion that white men have to black men and other racialized men. And in my most recent publication that just came out this year uh, called Killing Boogeymen, I actually give a very broad and, and specific definition of anti-black misandry as the cumulative assertions of black male inferiority that's due to like errant psychologies of lack or dispositions of deviance or the ideas that black men are hypersexual, hypermasculine, hyperviolent, etc., because those are the stereotypes that we use to rationalize the criminalization of black men, the fear of black men, and even the sanctioning of black male life. So if the audience are, if these listeners are saying he's using a word without looking at the previous literature, as well as my discussions of the literature and what it's trying to participate in, given some of the debates in masculinity studies, um, then it's a gross misrepresentation. And I would say about the comment that, oh, this is like reverse racism, that that's just dishonest, right? Like when you look at the history of uh, segregation, when you look at the history of anti-Black racism in the United States, you see constant appeals to the idea that Black men are particularly targeted. So if you look at John Dollard's book, uh, Cast in a Southern Town, for instance, uh, he gives a very, very specific example where he says, look, when you look at segregation, it was designed, it was literally designed to prevent black men from having sexual access or what he calls sexual gain um, of white women. So he says that many of the ideas that segregation and Jim Crow utilizes to keep the Negro in place is really about trying to keep the Negro male in place in the society so that he makes no economic gains. He has no psychologism that allows him to think of himself a man. And he structurally and, and Jim Crow structurally keeps black men criminalized so that they don't mess with or have sex or intercourse or interaction or contact with white women. Uh, this idea is repeated by uh, Daniel Monaghan in the Monaghan Report. We always talk about the Monaghan Report, but nobody really reads the Monaghan Report. And he was very clear. He said that when you keep the Negro in his place, that can be translated as keeping the Negro male in his place because they did not view the female as a threat to anybody. So the work that I'm doing is trying to capture the sentiment that we see in the mid 20th century that other scholars have termed as gendered racism or sexual racism that black men experienced in previous literatures. And then that's been represented in the literature, like in William A. Smith's work and my work and Connell's work about the relationship that dominant patriarchal males have to subordinate subjugated racialized males. And if, again, if that becomes a 
a slight or an insult because a full professor is tracing the lineage of ideas within literatures that he's publishing in and debating in, they were in a much, much worse circumstance about how we view black men than not. Because we don't say that if we use the word misogyny or this new hashtag uh, word that was created, misogynoir, which doesn't, and I can't find an article that actually defines that. I just, I've seen it being picked up by various scholars. Uh, nobody says that, oh, well, that's associated with X or there's no data on it, right? They say, well, this is a term the community's decided to use, so we allow the community to find their own experience. But with black men, you have 20 and 30 years of arguments on sexual racism or gender racism or the relationship between hegemonic subordinate masculinities and previous literatures about misandry. And people are saying, oh, well, that's MRA. It's a dishonest characterization of the work, largely because I'm a black man working on black men that goes against the grain of what we've been socialized to think about gender. I think a big problem with that, too, is that because people kind of take the idea of black patriarchy or black male privilege as a given. Exactly. As in, as in something that you don't have to disprove, then you can kind of um, formulate all your following um, extrapolations from that premise that's kind of taken as as a given. Absolutely. And it's very um, weird to them. I, I notice it feels weird to them to. Well, you can see their frustration yeah. when you start chipping away at their at at that at the foundation of their belief. When you say, "Hey, well, you're basing it on this," and they really don't have a comeback for that, and so it just turns into, "Oh, you hate black women," or "You're a MGTOW or MRA or whatever." But it sounds so. It sounds so crazy to them that they think of it like if you say, "Well, black patriarchy is not real," they will look at you as if you just said, "Water's not wet." Like that's how obvious to them it seems to be that. Um, black patriarchy is a valid concept. Well, listen, it was obvious to people, too, that the world was flat, but we know that's false. The The claim that something is obvious is not evidence that the, that that it's true. And again, this is why this is why I push for it. This is why I research. This is why I'm always on the road talking to people about black male studies. See, the way that people have been socialized to think is that there's an adversarial relationship with the discussion of black male oppression and, and black women's oppression. Um, I think anybody can pull up mm-hmm. any of my work and see that that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, however, and I'm very clear and adamant about this position, is that the way that we've understood gender erases and elides the suffering that black men have. So the reason that we don't study black men in domestic violence as victims of domestic violence and black men as victims of statutory rape and black men as victims of rape is because we have a concept of gender that says, well, those types of violences, that kind of violence only applies to the female body. So when you have a man that comes up and says, hey, as a black man, a member of this group that deals with this oppression, I'm going to study the oppression of my group. People say you can't do that. And then the question becomes, well, why? Why is it that black men who are the most underrepresented group in the academy have the least number of degrees in the, you know, in the of of the group in the United States, has the least social mobility, works the most blue collar job, has the, the, the worst mortality, the highest incarceration rate. Why can a black man that's part of that group not study his own group? And the answer only is you're a black man. So what I'm trying to do is re-socialize how we think about black men as a group. And yes, some of these arguments about the implicit bias and the association of black men with misogyny and, and violence and rape is taken up and socialized into the black people in our community. And that includes the black men and the black women in our community that buy into these racialized ideas. But as I've always said, and I've said in multiple publications, this is not because people just wake up hating black men. This is because we live in a racist society and we internalize these aspects of racism. And what I find to be so infuriating or rather frustrating, not infuriating, but frustrating rather, is that nobody has a problem when you say or when you look at the literature and say, you know, black gay men and women have suffered from internalized homophobia. Right. Because you live in a society that tells you that homosexuality is wrong. So you struggle with this. You internalize this as well. Nobody's nobody argues when you say, well, black women have internalized sexism, the idea that they can't lead or they can't be in charge. This is how they're socialized. But then you say, OK, well, if you could social, if you could be socialized in that way, we black men and black women can't be socialized into the ideas of anti black male stereotypes. That's silly. But this is what we say. And this isn't because it's factual. 
right? We have studies going all the way back to the 1970s in, in uh, educated cohorts in college that say that one of the major differences between the black race and the white race is their particularly negative stereotypes and accounts of men. So while the white race basically viewed themselves as, as even and didn't have negative views of men, Amongst black college educated students in the 70s, both black men and black women had more negative views of men than they did of women. And there have been several studies that reproduced it, one in the 90s and one in, uh, I think, the early 2000s. But the point is, is that we have some evidence that at least indicates that black people believe in these negative experiences and negative ideas of black males uh, at large. And we have not one discussion that really deals with it because everyone says, oh, well, that's just racism. When in reality, it's a very gender specific or sexually specific stereotype that deals with black males. So until we start having conversations and start embracing a kind of thinking and literature that wants to investigate that, then I think that it does become intuitive that, oh, black men are patriarchs or black men have black male privilege, which is kind of silly because that idea didn't start till the late the, the early 1980s anyway. And that kind of shows why there was a lot of pushback against the recent um, Chetty paper and then the follow-up paper by Brookings, which did have their problems from some of the things exactly. I've seen in the data. For example, they didn't seem to do a good job of separating income from wealth. And they I felt they kind of a little yeah. overstated what um, the state of black wealth was. But Overall, it hit on some uncomfortable truths and a lot of people in the academy and in media, their thing wasn't to say, oh, well, like to me, that paper is kind of showing that, okay, black men aren't getting any privilege. Uh, So maybe this means that really it's not everybody against white men and black men, but we have one more ally in the team. Like to me, they could have taken it and used it as a way to kind of help consolidate black people better or, you know, mobilize. But instead, it became about this type of zero-sum game where it's like, oh, wait a minute. If this is somehow, and I used this uh, metaphor before, but there's this kind of attitude as in uh, black oppression is like this zero-sum game where if one gender can claim um, more of it, then... It, you're using up that oppression oxygen in the room, and as a result, the other gender must necessarily be getting ignored or must be privileged and must therefore be the white people of black people. And yeah, yeah, so I noticed a lot of people using that study as an excuse to kind of a attack black men, and this includes like black men and black women who are doing this, and b claim that the study was an attack on black women for not privileging their suffering or oppression over black men's. Well, look, I think, I think that that's the problem is that if, if, so if no one says anything bad about you, but doesn't agree with the position that you're the most oppressed, it becomes an attack. Um, We can't get very much intellectual work done uh, with that view. Um, the Chetty study is interesting because it actually found that when you're talking about the the economic gap between black whites or the black white gap, that they they argue that it's primarily it's entirely driven by the differences in outcomes between black and white men, you know, who grew up in families with comparable incomes, and they didn't find the same thing for black women. Their basic argument is that if black women start off with white families in the same income, that they don't have a downward mobility trend, which means that if they start middle class, they they have the ability to keep going middle class, right? Whereas black men, because of job discrimination, et cetera, don't have that same finding. And what's interesting about the Chetty study to me is that I actually wrote the third chapter of my book um, partially about the, the trend of downward mobility, because what I was suggesting was that when you look at incarceration rates and the effect that incarceration has on, and this is, of course, Deborah uh, Pager's work, of the effect that incarceration has on the prospects of black men coming out of college and the incarcerated to lose jobs even to less educated white men, then you see that there's a stigma of criminality that affects black men's job prospects. So they suffer harsher job discrimination than their black female counterparts. Right. And other people like Tilly, et cetera, have also shown that black men are not are not thought to have the same kind of soft skills. So they don't necessarily interact with people and they're not seen as friendly. And they're seen as less agreeable and and harsher and more violent than their female counterparts. So they usually prefer 
black women to black men in certain types of jobs. So when you look at the totality of that, you're saying, well, listen, black men certainly have higher unemployment rates. I don't think anybody would deny or dispute that. But there's also a problem that black men, when they're on even kilter and they're educated in middle class, they still have worse economic and job outcomes um, than, than their female counterpart. So if the argument is, well, you can't say that, not because it's true, but because it doesn't center our oppression, then I don't know what it means to have intellectual debates or disagreements. The problem is, is that we have an ideology that has become mainstream that says that black women are always on the bottom. And that is simply not true. And that doesn't just go to black men. That goes to migrant women. That goes to indigenous men and women. It's simply not true as a demographic that black women are the most disadvantaged. And notice, none of the things that I say or do in my work says black men are the most disadvantaged. My argument is in a patriarchal society or when comparing them to white men or white women or their black female counterpart, they have worse outcomes in incarceration, mortality, employment, etc. This is not an ontological situation. Nobody is, by definition, on the bottom of everything. But we can see, as in the case of black and brown men and indigenous men in most cases, that the structure is set up in such a way that sociologically they find themselves more likely than not to be at the bottom of the demographic categories that we evaluate, which would be things like mortality, social mobility, education, etc. So I think the responses to this uh, study uh, is both premature Uh, because they haven't really read the previous literature, so they don't understand what's really being discussed. Uh, I think it's largely reactionary and ideological, because the argument is that it refutes some ideological position that we are belief that we hold very deeply, and because it doesn't agree with what we believe, it's hence bad. And third, um, I think that it's it's a kind of logic that uh, erases and minimizes the suffering of black men and boys in this country. Um, this is longitudinal data. This is a big, this is literally big data. I think it was over 20 million families that were tracked or something. And they found this finding. So, you know, we have to, we have to adjust theory to empiricism. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we have to be adversarial to each other. Uh, it doesn't mean that we have to hate each other. It means that we have to change and reformulate our thinking based on new information. And this is new information. Uh, I just don't think people are very good at that. You know, and I uh, so, something something that was interesting that I noticed was how people were so willing to start regurgitating uh, white supremacist talking points about black men to help kind of justify and keep this black male yeah. privilege um, narrative, and that includes black men and black oh, women absolutely. were doing it. But like to give you example, to give you examples, I've seen like uh, professors. There was a professor who. Work I tend to normally like his articles and stuff. I think it's uh, Ibram Kendu right. or something. I think the one who did Marked by Blackness, he uh, was kind of outraged about the study. And he's like, just because this data uh, might be true doesn't mean that uh, we should spread false narratives about, you know, black men being especially hurt. And it's like, wait a minute. You just said that's a contradicting tweet. You just said just because the data is true doesn't mean that we should make uh, false believe false things, <laughs> meaning that even if it's true, it's wrong. But then he also added that uh, he's afraid, and this is a very interesting characterization because uh, the study never said this, but this is what he tried to say. The study said he said, you know, people are going to take away from the study that you know, black says black women are so strong and black men are so weak that now we have to uh, stop helping black women and help black men when everything has already been geared toward helping black men. And then what I found interesting was about that was, why would you not take away from that study that black men are targeted more? Um, why would you take away from that study that black men are actually uh, doing worse because they're somehow lazier or somehow... Right. But this is part of the... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, this is part of the pathologization, right, uh, of black men. Um, you know... To my knowledge, uh, Dr. Kendi doesn't study black men. He doesn't write on black men. Um, so, again, I think that if you're not familiar with the actual literature and you come at it from a perspective that says, OK, well, I don't want to reproduce the Monaghan report 
or you come from it from a certain intersectional lens that says, I just fundamentally believe black women are at the bottom, then the empiricism is not going to sway that fundamental belief. Because there's nothing in the study that says you should stop helping black women. The argument is that, you see, this is what's funny. You know, in our society, here's what's funny. In our society, we say, well, white women are underperforming compared to white men. So white women need help in affirmative action, right? Yeah, and no, and, and no one says, and no one says that it's a sign that white women are inferior. This automatically, no, they, no, they, they automatically don't. assume that something must be leveling the playing field against them. Exactly. So you have to adjust things because of historical discrimination, right? So then you have, so then you have this study that says, well, black women have similar outcomes to white women. So the, if the, the logical progression is, well, if white women need help and they're because they're below white men, then if black women attain the same thing as white women, then basically they still need the same kind of help because they're inferior. They're in an economic or educational position that's inferior to white men. Nothing, nothing about that statement says that programs like Advance or Affirmative Action, which has overwhelmingly benefited uh, white women and secondly, uh, black women in the academy and most uh, corporate jobs should be in. You know, but in then you way, have this digital way, it's piece. It's almost like they believe that white black people belong a certain level below white people. Like Exactly. Because it's like it's like because this finding basically says now that we got this information about black men, then black men, too, need gender programs. Because this is not a race finding. This is a race and gender slash sex finding, meaning that even when you control for income and education, black men seem to do worse than white men, white women and their black female counterpart. So what is what is the ideological problem with saying that if a group is underperforming, then you should equalize the playing field for that group unless you believe certain things about that group? Because it's the same argument you make for white women. It's the same argument you make for white uh, for black women. So we have to retrain ourselves. Well, they believe that there's a finite amount of resources to be dedicated and that allocating anything towards black men would be taking away. Yeah, it's a very it's a very zero sum, zero sum type of thinking. Then why not make that argument about white women? Because white women might be able to give them jobs and they know black men. Black men can't. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's what I'm saying. This is not these arguments are ideological. They're not based in any they're not based in any logic or thinking through of the problem. If the if the if because black women still benefit from things like advance, black women still benefit from things like affirmative action. The the reason that people in the academy make this argument is because it has nothing to do with like the large scale of society. It's that in the academy, departments usually only hire one black person. And in that process, it's either gonna be a black man or a black woman. And that group of people generally say, oh, well, you have responsibility to hire black women. But this has nothing to do with the actual social inequalities in the United States. And this is why I think that it's so erroneous for us to keep repeating these hashtag ideas like black men are patriarchs, because the whole notion of patriarchy, even in the 1940s, was based on people hitting nuclear households and nuclear households being the basis of the economy and, and the polit- and po- uh, the political structure of the United States. Um that's never been the case for black men. And I think, as I've said before, and I certainly share this with the audience, um, the first studies that were looking at black, you know, developing the theories of patriarchy in the 1940s and 50s were using black people, specifically some of the experiences of black men, uh, as the basis of defining white women as victims of patriarchs. So the understanding back in the mid 20th century was that any racialized group was already a victim to white patriarchy. So what these feminists are arguing and these intersectional theorists are arguing is that even when you have segregationists, even when you have anthropologists arguing that there is no patriarchy, that they can't find any patriarchy in the black culture, that these black men still believed in patriarchy. And in the 1960s, when you get Dorothy Hyatt's report to the president and she's like, there's no patriarchy because black men have no self-esteem and they don't build homes. Even in 1963, Dorothy Hyatt was wrong and these black men were secretly building a patriarchy. And the first time we ever noticed it was in the (laughs) late 1970s and 1980s when Michelle Wallace and Bill Hook says, ah, there's black male patriarchy. This is this is a mythology. There has been no study done that has actually found that black men imitate white masculine norms like they don't. They Well, I found that um, a lot of these a lot of these women or people, not just women, because there's a lot of guys that 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 repeat this stuff, too. Um. You don't, you know, their anecdotal experiences trump any type of data or studies that you could bring to the table so they can just dismiss it out of hand just because, well, you know, I have a situation or I know this. We call those stereotypes, which is insane to me. But that's and that's exactly my point is that 
as I argue in my book, many of the reasons that gender theory seems to apply to black men is because they racially profile black men. We use individual aversion experiences of conflicts, disappointments as the basis of gender theory. And it makes no sense. Like, it makes no sense that we have 40 years of data and studies that talk about black men as being progressive. And in some cases, more progressive than black women. That we see black men having, you know, understanding the, the ills of sexual harassment. That we see black men that are supportive of women's rights and supportive of child care, et cetera. Much more so than, than white men and white women. But we'll, we'll sit up here and say, well, white women understand sexism, but black men don't. And nothing that we, none of the data we have suggests that. So then why are we using stereotypes? Because you want to say that a black man who's violent and abuses his wife, that's patriarchy. And because black black people uh, suffer from domestic violence at higher rates, is patriarchy run rampant in our communities? That's not the case. You have a disproportionate amount of poverty in our communities. You have disproportionate amounts of child abuse in our communities, two things which are heavily correlated to causing intimate partner violence. Right. Like it's it's, it's, it's it's as if they can only see one causality and everything emanates for patriarchy. It's the generic answer. It's like, you know, in debate, we said it was a generic dissent. You run a case about the economy and you say, oh, it's patriarchy because you believe in capitalism. This is what people are doing. And we're letting people get away with it because we don't have a real stake in debating the humanity of black people. Right. We just sit back and we argue that, well, black men are patriarchs or they're not patriarchs. But my question is, if they're patriarchs, show me the development of their patriarchy. And that's what I'm looking for in the literature, because when you start with Bell Hooks, Bell Hooks just says, look, these black men were free from slavery. They got the right to vote. And because they got the right to vote before women, that meant they were patriarchs. They bought into the idea that they were men. But when you look at the debates that are actually happening about suffrage and you're looking at the debates that black men are going through, nothing about those debates with white women, much less white men, indicate that black men had settled in their mind at all that there were white, that there were men like white men. Uh, in fact, the testimonies of Purvis and Douglas say the exact opposite, that, you know, that these white women suffragists are arguing that black men have a lesser manhood and that black men, because they were not Anglo-Saxon, was a threat to Anglo-Saxonism in the South and would crush the white race. So if the argument is, well, black men thought they were white men, they didn't respond to these white women saying, no, we're Anglo-Saxons like you. They said our black masculinity, our black manhood respects the ideas of civilization and God and culture, et cetera. They didn't say we were like white men. So again, the, the textual evidence, even when you're looking at the archives, is just not there. These are, these are people's biases. These are people's interpretive frames that are allowing them to say these kinds of things. And again, you know, I think this was Mrs. Maybe this was Miss Muse's point. I don't know uh, when she was kind of hinting at me using statistics, but interpreting the wrong way. Um, I don't know if she was talking about domestic abuse, but I would suggest that she has a woefully inadequate grasp of the debates that are happening between women violence advocates, which are usually feminists that take up the Duluth model, and then kind of family conflict studies scholars who are looking at other things like previous abuse, uh, poverty, alcoholism. Instead of recidivism, things of that sort. Those are debates in the literature. And if black people can't make the distinctions between, oh, well, this person is using Duluth because they're, a, you know, a woman's advocate scholar. And this black guy is using an ecological model of domestic violence because he's looking at family studies and family conflict. Then we're, we're again, we're losing the nuance that white people have in the literature all the time. But we're almost censoring when we're talking um, about black people. One thing that was very interesting to me that kept coming up was how so many people once they um first thing that was happening in response to the Shetty study where people were just criticizing the study but clearly not reading it. Um so what they were saying was things like, Well, yes. of course um things are gonna be harder for of course things are gonna be different because black men and this is an example of kind of stereotypes people were perpetuating. They were like, Well, hey, uh black men leave home like crazy. So, you know, they can um they choose not to work. And this is like uh, a lot of black women and black men saying this from the academy. So they choose not to work. They just go and kind of loaf around and it's a kind of Moynihan report kind of stuff. Wow. But black women, because they tend to be yeah. single parent um, um, family, um, head of the family, there's so many single mothers, they don't have a choice except uh, 
to work and take care of a family. So that's why the black men were doing worse because um, they're they're choosing not to work, but the women are the ones who are actually not lazy. And I was just thinking the study actually accounts for equal family structures. It says right there in the study that they're not yeah. doing apples and oranges. So it, w- it was kind of crazy. These people were like uh, academics saying this, but the ease with which they were lapsing into these white supremacist tropes. And then another one was saying that, oh, uh, well, you know, it kind of makes sense because I noticed uh, black women don't give in to peer pressure. Th- this is someone from Yale who, Yale who said this. I don't remember her name, but she says, I noticed black women, and this is something, and this is what Mike said about anecdotal. They use anecdotes. She's like, anecdotally, I always notice that black women are less likely to succumb to peer pressure but uh you know black men kind of they have that pressure to be cool and to be hard so then i'm like oh my gosh she's doing that whole um black cool pose thing what's that the cool pose yeah the cool pose and that the cool pose is making him think that being smart or studying or working hard is acting white whereas black women don't have that problem so then again the black men are to blame for their own um, downfall. And if you had done that to like, if someone did that to them with a white study, like, like if there was a study showing that black men were, black women were doing as badly compared to white women as, um, you know, what is short for the black men. Like if they had a duplicated finding like that for black women and white women and a white woman dared to say to them, oh, well, this shows how strong and competent white women are. You know, uh, we don't have that right, peer pressure. Right. You black, they would fly off the handle and rightfully exactly. so. Yeah. Exactly. Well, look, look the, the, the argument that they're making about black men is the same argument that white managers and employers view about black men. Right. Like there, you know, the study I talked about earlier by Philip Boss and Chris Tilly on soft skills and race um, makes the same argument that black women are thought to have to be strong and have to be more aggressive because they have to deal with these lazy, idle black men. And, and, and gentlemen, this is the same stereotype that Phoebe Cousins said about black men in her testimony on suffrage back in the 1860s. Hmm. Right. Like these stereotypes, like she literally says verbatim that black men are a lazy, idle cast and they're brutal and violent within their families. Wow. That's the logic that people like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were using when they said it's better for a, white, a black woman to be the slave of a white man than the husband of a black man. Because the argument was, well, white men are slave owners, but they're more gentle with their slaves. Black men are brutes, so they'll terrorize their women. So it's safer to be a slave than the wife of a black man. These logics are the same things that white supremacists use in the mid 1800s to justify why black men should not have the right to vote. And then you see it reinvention of them. This is why I say that this is why gender theory or the way we talk about black men and gender theory is so dangerous because they're not new theories. They're just the reinvention of theories that we can literally find in the archives of the revolution, which was the, you know, the, the suffrage journal that was funded by white supremacists in, you know, 1868 or so. This is not new. The only difference is we don't educate black people about this. We're not telling them that, hey, listen, when feminism came about, They were actually anti-black male because they were competing with black men for the right to vote. They thought they were superior. We're not telling people that in the mid 20th century, in the early 1900s, here's how people viewed black men. We tell them none of that history. So then we get a study like this. And the first thing that even educated black people in the academy do is they say, hey, Black women are superior to black men because black women try harder, right? It's kind of this, it's this kind of Protestant ethic, right? Black women have to go through so much and they succeed. So black women can succeed and black men aren't. That says something about the failure of black men. And we, and we let this stuff pass as if it's real theory, like it's really saying something, when it's nothing more than people's biases and stereotypes. And I think that, again, this is the problem, that when you have someone saying, listen, we need a black male studies, because the things that you are saying are not only rampantly ideological and, and racist and, and, and misandric in the worst sort of way, but they're just wrong. Like, it's just it's just false. 
right? Like, you know, the idea that black men were bad parents. We know that's false. The idea that black men run out on their families. That's something that was starting in the 1930s, right? Another reason that white people thought that black men could be patriarchs because they couldn't be fathers and head of households, right? Like these, these racist theories just pile up on each other. And then we get them reinvigorated now because people say, oh, well, because we're saying it as an intersectionality scholar, that somehow devoids of it is racism. So because black women are saying it, because other black men are saying it, that means that these theories about black men aren't wrong. They're and racist. They're just true. And that's a problem. And also, yeah, also a lot of white liberals feel a license to say it, not only because they see a lot of these um, both black men and women saying it, but they get to position themselves as kind of saviors of oh, black absolutely. women. So they get, they get to um, say, oh, we're saying this to defend the more marginalized person in oh, the relationship. Exactly. And again, the idea that the person is more marginalized is based on thinking of black people's gender relationships being as being duplicative. Yeah, yeah the same as uh, white people's. Uh, this is a general question I have. What do you feel are the strengths and weaknesses um, in a very cursory way of the Shetty study and also the Brookings study that recently followed it, which I noticed didn't get talked about quite right. as much, maybe because it didn't appear in the New York Times. Well, I think but, uh, I was kind of worried about the pros and cons. Well, look, this is again, this is where I say that as a as a person trained in humanities and social sciences, I'm not an economist. So I think from reading the results in the discussion that there is a question about wealth, because I think they define wealth as something like mid hundred thousands, which is more of a me- measure of income. And I think that's a real problem because given the work that people like Sandy Darity and mm. Antonio Moore and uh, Hamilton are doing around wealth, it suggests that you may get some kind of different aspects, right? But I can't read their analyses because I'm not an economist, so I can only follow the discussions whether or not previous literature has said it. So I think that's a debate that economists, that black economists are going to have with these, you know, with these economists to see where, where it comes out. Um, in terms of the strength of it, I can say that as a person that reads about economic downturns, poverty, incarceration, criminalization stereotypes, um, that this gives further support to decades uh, to literature that was published in 2005, 2006 about how job discrimination and uh, the kind of hostility that black men face in college and other uh, you know institutions, be it job or you know uh, educational. Um, seem to pull them out, to, to ostracize them outside of those institutions. And like most things, they seem to do worse than their female counterpart. Uh, I think that gives us evidence that there is a very specific race and gender, gender interaction or race and sex interaction around black men that does exclude them from what we take to be male privilege in this society. And we need more studies about that. Um, it's really funny. This morning I was reading a study um, from a, a political scientist that really fascinated me. And it was about how racial politics in the United States, uh, what's the name of it? It's called Racial Politics Complicated. And it was looking at the perceptions of violence amongst white Americans. And in both of the implicit bias and kind of the outward bias measures they use, black men came out to be perceived the most violent of every group. And in some measures, black women were thought to be just as violent as white men and white women were the least violent, right? And the authors are making this argument. It's like, listen, when you measure things in society, it's very clear that black men have a unique kind of situation, that they're criminalized more, that they're perceived as more violent. And this kind of notion of violence is what's driving racism and and, and, and bias against black people. And you find the same thing in the Chetty study where you're like, hey, when you're looking at economics and when you're looking at social mobility, you can kind of explain this this difference in, in, in poverty or at least how they conflated income and wealth between the black people and white people. If you look at how black men have been ostracized and taken out of the labor market. Right. And we have all this evidence and you have all the psychology psychological studies about adultification and formidability where black men are perceived to be more dangerous and stronger and violent. And that's why people, you know, white people kill them quicker. And you're looking like, well, how much evidence do you need? Because these people aren't even black people. These are just, you know, they're they're the objective white scholar studying black people. And they're finding the same thing that black men are finding. And then you say, well, how much evidence do you need? And, and that's what I'm constantly asking myself as a person that's writing on black men, that's studying on black men. How much evidence do I need to convince a group of people that seem to believe that black men have privilege and they're patriarchal and they're violent and they abuse women? How many studies 
How many, how many personal narratives, how many stories from the victims that I talk to do you need to see that the old theories we have about this group is simply not true? And it doesn't seem to be any answer because when these studies come out, there's an, there's an immediate retreat from black scholars in where we all have to be perceived as gender progressive. So we can't actually do the hard work that lets us debate against black feminists. I think that the position is that if you seriously debate black feminists, and I don't mean dismiss them, but say, let's have the debate. Let's have the debate in the literature. That's respectful because it means that I'm taking your position seriously. But in a world where every time you try to say, well, here's the evidence, here's the theory, here's my publications on it, what's yours? And they say, well, you can't speak. I'm, I'm less driven to take that as a serious intellectual position and more likely to see this as the kind of repetition and habituation of a certain set of mythologies or ideologies. And that's, again, that's not saying all black feminists, because there are black feminists who work in the social sciences, who do uh, extremely good work, like Ellen Simeon's work, uh, people who are looking at voting behaviors, attitudes, et cetera, that don't always agree with my theories or my findings. But that's a debate to be had. I think that what black people are doing right now is they're saying there can only be one position about black men and no one else in the academy, regardless of where they work, regardless of what they research, has the ability to challenge that. And I think that's very dangerous uh, to, to what we're trying to do. Hey, fam, that's the end of part one of the Tommy Curry interview. In part two, we're going to discuss the studies more in depth and talk about a bunch of other topics, including uh, the state of the discourse right now. So join us in uh, the next free episode, episode 81. And thanks for joining us. We're going to go out on a few clips that are floating around there that I think uh, kind of relate. Some we agree with, some we don't agree with, but, you know, it's just some food for thought and some examples of various things that we talk about both in this episode and on the show in general that you might find interesting. Let's talk about black feminism. It's remarkable to me that feminism is so despised. Black feminists are expected to spend our lives battling misinformation. We're supposed to be apologetic for something that has not only done enormous good for black communities, but that is literally changing the world. Because the black men, please see that we love you posture is really corny to me right now. Let's just run down the facts. Feminism belongs to black women as much as it does any other group. I don't know why folks think that black feminists are stupid. We recognize that our lives and our work differ significantly from white women. That's why we created something that speaks directly to our needs. Black women in the United States have been organizing around progressive gender politics for 200 years. Each generation picks up where the last left off within the black community. Black feminists have been battling what sociologist LaRue Lewis calls black male privilege. Black male privilege operates as a system of built-in and often overlooked systematic advantages that center the experience and the concerns of black males while minimizing the power that black males hold. So no, black men don't have the power that white men have. But within black communities, there is a pecking order and black men are at the top. Furthermore, black men often collude with patriarchy in order to maintain their dominance. And I'm genuinely confused about why we have to spend so much time discussing something that is so apparent. All that arguing about stuff that is completely obvious diverts our attention away from the work that black feminism does and has done. Instead of trying to corner black feminists with false claims, y'all need to be thanking us. Because centering black women's lives and work didn't create a selfish movement or system of belief. Let's, let's, let's look at a few, I'm, I'm gonna bring up a few definitions. Now this was a, from a black feminism page and listen, this is what it says. Misogynoir, black feminist scholar, Moya Bailey coined the term misogynoir, blah, 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 to describe the specific form of gendered racism experienced by black women. For example, misogynoir is when white women are praised for wearing styles black women, black women originated, while black women are considered ghetto or ratchet for the same fashions. Misogynoir is an intersectional form of oppression in that, somebody said, they, they wrote it wrong, too, in that the members of this group 
are subject to it because of their blackness and womanhood as inseparable, inseparable facets of their social identity. I just want to get the definitions right. I just want to make sure we understand all the definitions. Okay. Now here's that, that definition mentions intersectionality. So, so, so take a look at, take a look at what intersectionality means in terms of, in terms of what they're talking about. And it, it basically is what I just said, kind of a adding up, right? Like, you know, uh, uh, Intersectionality, to, to, intersectionality refers to how the interaction between different social categories, i.e. race, gender, shape people's lived experiences. Intersectionality also refers to the complex way inequality is arranged at the social level so, so that some groups have power relative to others, even if they are disadvantaged or privileged in other ways. Well... It still doesn't make very much sense. And, and, and this is coming from someone who is trying to make sense of it. Because when we're talking about understanding what we're talking about in the beginning of this conversation, what we're talking about is black patriarchy. And so what you're telling me is that this lived experience that you have. Let me give you an example. I was reading in preparation for this article. I was reading in preparation for this article something very, very interesting. I was reading an article, and I'm going to put this chart up just so you see. Um, I was reading this, and something very interesting just came up. And it was these women who were saying, well, you know, we have tried. We, we, we tried to go to a bar. And they said, we tried to go to a bar. And the bar, the bar, that, we, the bar that we went to, the bar that we went to, didn't allow us in right and they were saying that and they were saying that the bar that we went to wouldn't allow us in to 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 be there and have a and, and have a, and they were saying we shouldn't be able we shouldn't have to act white to go to a bar and this article was up at theguardian.com they were saying we shouldn't have to act white in order to go to a bar and I agree with that. But then the writer in the Guardian article, and this was like in London, she said, well, this was because the women were told they were too big and they were too black, that this was, this was misogynoir, right? That's what they were told. Well, here's the problem with that. Here is the problem with that. The problem with that, the problem with that is that how is what you really were you what you really were was discriminated on based on your race you were too you said that they said you were too big okay that's just black women being more curvy you were too big and they said you were too black well that's these are markers of being a part of an underclass community that's what this is this is an underclass marker they didn't want black people there. I don't know. I don't know how there was something more specific in terms of that racial discrimination. I don't know. How was that racial discrimination somehow worse than other discrimination? It doesn't make sense to me. I don't see how you, because if you're saying, like black women have been able to say we're a double minority, right? We get when affirmative action happened, we're women and we're also black, but I don't understand. I really don't. What I'm trying, what I'm trying to do is really try to understand how that makes sense. Oh yes. You can't get it like it. You can't get it like it ought to be. That's a given. And you have to make up your minds to that. It shouldn't be all this squabbling and whatnot. Hmm. I mean, about that. Because we are acting like we're going to get it or that we can get it like it ought to be. There's no way to get it like it ought to be. Hmm. You, can make it, you can make it functional. I mean, but see, you don't have control over anything. See, that's the key. Black male, black female chained together at the bottom of the slave ship naked with absolutely nothing because everything has to come from the captain of the ship who is always white. So therefore, knowing that you don't have this control, 
You can't make demands on each other. Nor can you, uh, you, you can't make demands of any kind on anybody, including the captain of the ship. We're already in captivity. We never have stopped being. We have to realize that. We're prisoners of war. That's a different position altogether from just going your own way and doing your own thing. Like you hear some black people say, getting our own land and all this type of thing. Getting your own land where? The white supremacists run the planet and getting ready to run other planets. And we don't even know how to get across town. They know how to get across the universe. That's what I mean by a pitiful condition. Yet we spend too much time running around bragging to each other. Wow. You ain't the one supposed to say be. You ain't the one supposed to say quitting time. I'm the one supposed to say quitting time. <laughs> wow. Over on the other side of the tracks. Super Negro. On a small island, assigned to him by the white supremacists, racist man and racist woman. And so you turn to the other black people and talk about how great you are. Woman, you look up to me. I'm the head of the household. You're not the head of anything. No black male is the head of anything. And we ought to stop shamming. But if somebody tells us that, we get angry. And then we take out a pistol that the racists provided for us, and we start shooting every black person in sight. And then we feel like we have accomplished something. Mm. We've gone from being pitiful to super stupid. Wow. And just proved it. Oh, you mean ask white people for help? Yes, sir. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's who. That's who can help you. You always ask them. You nonstop. This is where everything comes from. Everything comes from the captain of the slave ship. You're on the slave ship. Everything comes from him. Ain't no point in asking the rest of the slaves. They ain't got nothing. Y'all chained together. The guy sitting down there, I mean, he's, you know, he got a big chunk of cornbread. You know, you don't bother him about his cornbread. You say, man, where'd you get that cornbread? <laughs> I got it from the first mate when he came down here this morning while you were asleep. So when that white guy comes back down that ladder, I'm going to say, hey, you think you got a little another, another little chunk of cornbread up there? You know, right? I ain't going to be down there arguing with him about his cornbread. I mean, you know, I know where he got it. That's why I asked him. Man, where'd you get that bread? If you were asleep and the man came down the ladder, he was going to give you some. Since you were asleep, he gave it all to me. You know? <laughs> well, when he comes back down here, I ain't going to be asleep next time. You know? <laughs> That's the way that works. I ain't going to get mad at you. I mean, you know, hey. Um, to ask white people? Yes, that it makes Well, you can simply ask them a very logical question. If I don't get it from you, who am I going to get it from? Hmm. If I don't get a job from you, who am I going to get it from? Miles or Dong? You know? Hmm. Another non-white person? Ho Chi Minh? Hmm. Bin Laden? I'm asking you. I'm closest to you. I'm raised by you. Now, how much more raising are you going to do? You know, who, I'm, I'm dependent on you. You made me that. I've never been given nothing where I could be independent of you. 
you do it politely, I mean, you know, but, you know, and you say it differently from the way I'm saying it, but basically that's what you're saying. You're saying if I don't get it, whatever I need from the white people who have what I need, where am I going to get it? Well, make it on your own. Wait a minute. On my own, what do I own? I've been told that I don't own nothing. I'm told that. Where would I get where where would I get something to own something? How do I go about owning anything? Except to ask you. I, you got to even authorize say that I own something. Somebody white. Before I can even own anything, I have to ask a white person, do I own this? <laughs> You'll say, yeah, I'm giving you a piece of paper saying that you own it. I'm giving you a piece of paper. You don't own it before I give it to you, okay? You now own this house because I said so. I might come around next week and say you no longer own it. Because I said so. I tell you what the money is worth. I also tell you how to get the money. You get it from me. No other source. You want a job? You get it from me. You want a house? You get it from me. You want to travel down the river? River? You got to get my authorization. You want to drive a car? I issue you a license. You want to buy a car? It'll be on my terms. You are dependent on me. That makes me a man and makes you a boy. Holding all yeah. that. Otherwise, you you can't accuse a person of being a white supremacist. You know, if he's not supreme, that'd be a false charge. See, just saying that, well, white folks don't like me, that ain't no harm. They don't like you. I mean, you know, and you're doing your own thing. You don't have to ask them for nothing. So what? Right. 